you have your Bibles, go ahead and find your way to Galatians chapter 3. We're in week 9 of our series through Paul's letter to the Galatian church, this young church in in modern day Turkey and, and understanding how it is that, that with what Paul gives us in Galatians is, is how we can see that, that our identity is centered on Christ alone, that we're, we're centered in, in Christ is. This gospel that, that Paul has given us proclaiming that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we continue today, we're looking at Paul's defense in in chapter 3, just coming with these different examples throughout chapter 3. It's all different examples of the same thing of the gospel is by faith alone. So if you will, follow along. We'll be in Galatians 3. We're starting in verse 15, and then we'll go through verse 22 today. So in Galatians 3.15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean, that the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If y'all pray with me, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this today. Father God, we come and we, we open your word, God, and we seek your truth. And we just pray that, that we would rely on your Spirit's guidance, God, that it would give us the truth, that we wouldn't change the truth to make it more comfortable, God. We would see who we are in light of your gospel and your truth, God. And we just acknowledge that we are incapable of discerning your truth without your help. And we just pray your spirit would guide us through this today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last few weeks we've focused on faith, seeing that, that it was through faith the, the first part of chapter 3, we see that it's through faith that the Galatians had received the Spirit. They'd been saved by faith. They'd received the Spirit. That's saying that they were saved. The Spirit had made them alive, and it was by faith. And then, and then Paul moved, and last week we talked about how Abraham had believed God, and it counted to him as righteousness, that it was his belief that declared him or, or allowed him to become righteous, not what he did. And, and talking about how it was the faith aspect in both of those examples that, that we saw coming to the forefront. And so, again, just starting with that, we need to understand and, and look inside ourselves and see, do we actually believe God will do what he says? When we see what God has said and we open Scripture and we see what He tells us, do we actually believe that He's going to do what He says? Do we actually believe that He will keep His promise? Do we see that? And, and what happens then is, is the problem that, that runs into our minds is 
We don't understand then if, if God's going to do what he says, then why do we have the law? What does this relationship do? How, do? how do we have this? And so today, Paul finally kind of answers that question that everyone's had. If we see the law, Paul finally answers that, but it's really not the answer that we thought of. It really isn't answered, and the law doesn't do what we think it does. And so we see it, the overall theme of this passage, we see that we're centered on a promise. Then, and that Paul sees this and understands that, that this promise is the center of everything. And we see today that neither time nor sin or the law can break that promise. That, that God's promise is unbreakable. That it's in him, and so therefore it's secure. But it's hard for us to understand that, right? Most of us have been, let's say all of us have been on both sides of a broken promise. Right? You've had something promised to you and then it doesn't, doesn't happen or you've promised something and failed to deliver. Or maybe it wasn't that you failed to deliver or they didn't, but they changed it. That, that what they promised happened, but in the way that they did it wasn't how they promised. And so it wasn't the same. And so what we see happening is we take that same mindset to God. As we see that we've been hurt by people or promises have left undone. And so we then assume then that that's how God is going to treat us. That, that when we see that we're centered on this promise and that Paul brings us back to this promise, we see that we relate to God the way we relate to each other. And we assume then that his promise isn't going to be upheld or that, or that it'll change. That, that, okay, he'll do what he says, but he's going to do it in a different way. And, and we, we see all this happening. And first, what we see here is Paul showing us that time doesn't alter God's promises. If you look at the 15 through 18, we see Paul giving us this example. He's, he's going in and saying, okay, so here's a, here's a better example. He talked about Abraham last week and the righteous shall live by faith and, and all that. And so now he says, well, let me give you a human example. He, he takes us down to the practical part of this gospel issue. And he says, okay, don't focus on Abraham or all of Focus on this human example. And he gives us this example of a covenant. And in Greek, the easiest way to see that is that it's agreement between two parties. The, the best way we think of it, the way Paul's using it, is that it's like a will. Like this is the, the will. Someone has a will, and, and so set that up, and it's this covenant between people. AJ, will you go give me the wireless thing? Sorry, it's bugging me. Is that bugging you all too? Couldn't do it. But um, it's, it's better to understand this, this idea of a will, because in our time, a will is about the only thing that we really don't mess with. It's about the only thing that we really don't change. And so we see that, and we understand that, Is that better? There we go. We, we see that, that that will then isn't changed at all. It's, it doesn't matter what has happened to that person. That person is the only one that can change it. And so what we see then is just like Paul saying this human example, if you can't change a will, then why can we assume that you're going to change something that was ratified by God? That if this man-made covenant that, that we see, if you can't change it, only that person that ratified can change it. The only person that creates the will can change it. There's exceptions. I get that, that there's power of attorney and sometimes things happen. But in general, if you look at the will, you see that then we understand that only that person can change it. And we see that because you can see all sorts of these vast, crazy things if you search on the internet, odd things that people have 
bequeathed in their wills. It's ridiculous. I was Googling it last night, wanted to find a couple. There's none to pick from because they're all ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how many pets have been given inheritance, but there's quite a few. And so we see this idea that if, if someone can change, if someone can leave this stuff and inheritance in their will and not change it, why do we expect that we can change God's covenant? Why do we expect that anyone but God can change it? Because that's what we do, and that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, if you can have a man-made covenant that's not changed, then this covenant that God has made can't be changed either. And so what happens then is, is we come to this idea of, well, God and Abraham were both there. If, if both parties are there, then both parties can change it, right? And this this idea that it, kind of it takes two to tango. There's both of them there. And so, well, we could change it because it was between God and man, and both were involved. But when we look at that promise, if you go back and read Genesis 15 of this whole process of God giving Abraham the promise and, and looking at the way that, that covenants were made then and seeing that, that they would literally cut animals in half and lay both sides, and then both parties would walk in between them, basically saying that if you, to me, to break this would be to die. It's, it's, so, it's the same thing, and it was this critical understanding then that, that we see that no one could change that. And when we look at Genesis 15, God is the only party that walked through the middle of that. So at the end of Genesis 15, Abraham, a sleep comes on him. And then what we see is God, through this fire, passes through. So it was God that, rat that ratified the covenant. It wasn't both of them. It wasn't God and Abraham walking together. It was God alone. And so because of that, it's only God that can change his promise. And we have a hard time in, in, in our culture understanding that. We think that, well, this old thing is somehow non-existent anymore. We, we live in this time to where we might claim that we're, we're building on the things of the past, but really we're smarter than those people were because we're more advanced. And so we have this hard time of understanding what, what Paul's saying here when he says that it doesn't matter that the law came after the covenant. It's still under the promise. So we see in, in verse 17, that's exactly what I mean is what Paul says. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. He's saying it doesn't matter that it came 430 years after, that, that period of the exile. It doesn't matter. It didn't change it. It didn't annul it. It didn't take its place. So time, that time span in this increasing timeline as we move forward in our lives in the history doesn't change the promise matter how much time has passed, the promise made to Abraham is still in effect. And, and who was the, the promised seed of that Christ is still who we're under. We're not under the law in that sense. No amount of time can break the promise of God. And that's what he, he's saying here in 18. It says, for if inheritance comes by the law, then it's no longer by the promise. But God gave it by a promise. And so if it comes by the law, then the promise doesn't mean anything. So they're left with two things, that God isn't capable of doing what he said, or he changes his mind. And Paul's saying, no, it's neither of those. It's still under the promise. Since God gave us this inheritance by a promise, that's the only way to receive it. We inherit this. That's why looking at it as a will is a good, is a good visual for this, because we see that in that, we inherit this promise because he gave it to Abraham. 
The, the law that came 430 years after doesn't change the promise. It doesn't break that promise. Time cannot break that promise. And so then what that does, though, is it goes to the next logical thing is, okay, so if it doesn't break the promise, what does it do? If time can't break the promise, and, and it doesn't matter if the law came 430 years after, then what does it do? And so what we see next, why the law? And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come who the promise had been made. And so what we see there is that, that not only can time break the promise, but sin cannot break it because that's what the law came. The law came to point out our transgressions. Apart from the law, we would live our lives and, and basically think that we're all right, that we would see this idea and think, oh, we're pretty much okay. We would start comparing ourselves to each other, which we all do anyways, and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Look at all these other people. And, and that's, not what the, that's not what the law does. The law points out that everyone here is a sinner. The law gives us, this, gives us this guideline, this command that God says to live by, and it shows us that none of us can keep it. Tim Keller says its main purpose is to show us our problem, that we are all lawbreakers and to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we are unable to be perfect law keepers. So he's saying there that the law just shows us that we cannot keep it. That, and if we can't keep it, then we're not the solution. John Stott kind of adds on to that, and he says, The function of the law was not to bestow salvation, however, but to convince men of the need of it. And so when we see this, the, the law then coming after this time period, the, it, it revealing our sin, and our sin can't break the promise because it points us to the promise. And, that, and what we see is Paul always has this in the forefront of his mind. In his letter to the Romans, he's talking about this idea. In Romans 3.20, it says, For by the works of law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're not justified in the law. We become sinners because the law reveals that to us. In Romans 4.15, it says the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so if the law hadn't come, then we wouldn't see our need for a Savior. And so the law reveals that to us. And so we see that we are sinners, but what we need to understand is through what Paul's saying here is that sin doesn't break the law. It points to it. Or it doesn't break the promise. It points to it. We see in the law our sin. And not only that we understand our need for salvation if it weren't for the law. If it weren't for the law, we wouldn't see our, see our need to go to him. So our sin doesn't break the promise, it points out our need for it. And contrary to what people would have you believe, that's not a bad thing. A lot of people, that's their, their holdup when they hear Christianity is like, well, you just tell everyone how bad they are. Well, we are that bad. It's not a, a bad thing to point that out. And, and because the problem is that most people today treat sin kind of like the boogeyman in the closet. If we think hard enough, we close our eyes, then he's not there. So if we think less about our sin or we think better about ourselves and all of a sudden we're not sinful but it doesn't go away we just don't think about it i used to be used to be i don't know last couple of years i quit doing this i guess but um one thing i was always a scared kid i was just that kid that was always scared i don't know why but um and so what i do if i was ever at home by myself and i did whatever and i would i would go and like clear every room like i would go check every closet I'd turn on the light, and then I would shut the door because then I knew that room was okay. And I, I just did that. Every room, if I was ever at home by myself, every light was on, but the doors were shut because I knew that, okay, that's good. And that's what I would do. But 
and I don't, I don't know why. That's kind of odd now that I think about it. I don't know if I should have told you that. But uh, anyways, but that's what I do. It made me comfortable. But that's what we do with our sin, right? We kind of we check it off and think, well, I'm good okay. I'm good here, so I'm not going to think about that. I know that's okay. I've, I've done that part. And so what we see is that when we do that, it, it reveals an incorrect understanding of the law's purpose. And as such, it also shows a misapplication of the reach of God's promise. That, that our sin is fine to understand because it points us to the need for something greater than ourselves. Our sin doesn't break God's promise. It highlights it. It reveals the need for it. Your sin cannot break God's promise. And then that goes back to, to the promise itself. Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness. It wasn't what he did. He believed God. In all tents and purposes, he was a pagan man that God came to and said, I'll make you a father of nations. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And he believed God and was counted as righteousness. So why then do we think that our sin can then break that promise? And so we have to start doing something on our own. We can read the law and we can look at it and we can go back to it and understand that it reveals us for the sinners that we are, and that's a good thing, because then we'll truly go to God broken. That we'll truly see ourselves as empty and not being able to be the solution. We see that then we need to push into that seed of that promise, Jesus Christ, that through all nations will be blessed. That's why the gospel is a good news, because it starts with that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Because if we're not sinners, then we don't need a Savior. And if we don't need a Savior, then we don't need God. And we just live our lives and we wander around trying to earn an acceptance that we cannot earn. Your sin cannot break God's promise. It points to it. Tim Keller adds again, the law then does not oppose the promise of salvation by grace through faith, but rather supports it by pointing out to us our need of it. And see, this is what was happening in the Galatian church is these people were coming out and saying, okay, that's great, it's by faith and all that, but you got to do all these things under the law. And Paul's saying here, no. Your sin doesn't break God's promise. It points back to it. It points back to the only way you're going to have faith in, or salvation is through faith in that promise. Paul's not saying, he's saying that it, does, it doesn't matter how much you work because you're still sinners. On our best day, we fail to keep God's law. And we see then that we really need him because there's nothing that we can do to change that. Our sin cannot break God's promise. And then ultimately see that the law itself cannot break God's promise. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In verse 21, we see everything that we need. We, we read here that Paul's telling them that the law cannot show them how to become righteous. Because that's not what the purpose of the law was. The law was to reveal sin. It's not to show us how to be righteous. It's to reveal the sinfulness in which we are. That's what we see then in the second part of verse 21. Is if the law would have been able to give us life, then yes, we could find righteousness through it. But that's not what the law that we got was. The law we got revealed our sin, our transgression, which is why he says that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. He's going back to the Old Testament. He's going back to the law and saying that Scripture 
imprisoned everything under sin. Scripture, the law, we read the Old Testament, we read the law, all it did was show us that we're in sin. You have to, the law reveals this sin. It doesn't bring life. If it brought life, then yes, it would be okay, because then it is the same thing as the promise, but it's not. It's contrary to the promise. But doesn't that seem harsh? That's, that's what we get, right? We go to this all of a sudden, okay, so God gave us this law just to show us how bad we were. That doesn't seem like a lovable God, right? That's, that's that odd time to where we see that, well, maybe he is just this grumpy old man type God that's just harsh on everything, that, that yells at people when they walk through the yard and all that stuff. That nothing ever makes them happy because that's the law that he gives us. But when we see that question, we see people that genuinely question God based on that. We see that they're genuinely questioning God based on incomplete evidence. They're seeing one aspect of it. They're seeing the law, and they're saying, because of this, there's no way you can be a loving God. Because if we just stay at the law, then we are sinners. There is no hope. It just keeps revealing us how we can't do anything. But it's making a judgment on God without the complete story in mind. And we want all the evidence, right? If you, had to, if you had to go to court for some reason, wouldn't you want all the evidence to be presented before the ruling? Right? You would want it all to be out there, right? If you, if you didn't have all the evidence, then it might not go the way it should. And so when people question God and say, he's just this grumpy, harsh God because of the law and tell us that we're sinners, which is exactly what we see happening in our culture today. We can't call people sinners. When we see that and we just look at that, then we understand that maybe he is grumpy, but that's not the complete story. And that's what Paul's saying here is that, that the law doesn't bring us righteousness. It points us to the reason we gain it. That's the promise. Just as the court couldn't rule based on incomplete evidence, we shouldn't judge God based on incomplete evidence. We need to look at the whole story. We need to look from beginning to end because if we read Scripture, there's one theme that happens over and over again. It's God providing a way for his people to come to him. And it's through his actions that we're saved. If we look at the entire body of evidence and go all the way back to the promise, then we see that the law isn't breaking that promise. It's highlighting it. It's pointing us to the promise. It doesn't break God's promise and make him out to be this grumpy old man that changed his mind and decided he didn't like us. It says, no, you are all sinners. Yet there's a promise given before this that he will provide that way, that through that one offspring of Abraham, Christ, that all nations will be blessed. The law doesn't break God's promise. It highlights it. The law points out the fact that we are sinners, and it drives us to God because it shows us that we can't live the life that people expect us to live. We can't live this moral life and gain salvation. It might work for a while, but then it doesn't deliver. We can't just simply keep doing these same things and expecting a different result. We have to go back to the promise and realize it doesn't matter what our, auction, our actions are. We're centered on a promise that God made with Abraham. And that promise says that you don't need to do anything but believe that I'm going to do what I'm going to say and come to me. And then we see that this law then came that, that showed us that we needed that. It reminds us of our need. It drives us back to that. That if, if the law broke God's promise, then we would be just like those who are troubling the Galatians here that 
feeling that we had to do something to gain God's approval. That's not what God says. That's not what Scripture says. We can't gain acceptance. In Ephesians 2, we see that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, yet made alive in Christ. It doesn't say that we made ourselves more presentable than we were alive. It says because He died for us. The law cannot break God's promise. If it did, then we're utterly hopeless because the law can't provide life. Because of the law, we see that we're sinners. That fact drives us back to the promise. If it doesn't drive us back to the promise, then we're not truly understanding who we are. Because the law points one way to our sin. In, in, in commenting on this, Martin Luther said, a common proverb says, hunger is the best cook. That might be one of his most subtle comments. But he says that, that hunger is the best cook. Just as the dry earth longs for rain, so the law makes troubled and afflicted souls thirst after Christ. And so we see then, as, as Luther puts it, that if we truly see the law, it's going to cause us to thirst for Christ. Because in Christ, we see the well that can satisfy that desire. So do you thirst for Christ? Do you simply see yourself at the the rock bottom and not being able to do anything about your life and, and thirst for him that can provide the way out? Who already did that? See, we live in in a time that we don't have to wonder if God's gonna fulfill his promise because he already has, because he already sent his son. We simply believe in him by faith. Do you thirst for Christ because you see who you are? Because if we don't see who we are, then we're going to be settling for false saviors who masquerade as our, our actions and our moral lives the whole time we're still sinners and not seeing who we truly are. So stop working and seek Christ. This desire that we have to be better people should be satisfied in Christ, not in our actions. It's not anything that we do apart from faith in him. That's what Paul's saying here. That if the law would have brought life, then yes, that's fine, but it doesn't. It was given to Abraham by God himself. This promise that provides that way to salvation. We don't do anything to gain it. It was given to us. And so, do you thirst for Christ? Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you responded in faith. But you've been in this peak and flow, or peak and valley, this, this ebb and flow of life where you try to do everything, and, you're, and for a while you can do that, and you're, you're going good, but then life, something happens. And, and the life that we live, and the world we live, something crazy happens, and it shatters everything because then you realize that we're incapable of controlling our life. So what happens then is you go to your bottom, and you don't understand where to go from there. Because you're drawing your identity, you're being centered on yourself and your actions instead of on Christ. And so what we do is we simply repent and turn to Him. We thirst for Christ because that's where we're satisfied. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe, there, there, maybe you've thought that you have, but you've never actually seen this change in your life. That, that you start doing these, quote, religious activities, but nothing really changes in your heart, then what you need to understand is that you turn to Him. Being a better Christian doesn't make you one. 
It's being identified with God's Son, Jesus Christ alone, that we find salvation, that we find identity. So if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, don't delay, because only death and destruction await those who are found outside of Christ. If we're not united with Christ, then we're dead in our sin. And that's a spiritual death for eternity separated from Him. But only life and righteousness await for those who in faith believe in Him. It doesn't matter what we do. It's placing our faith in Him. And when we place our faith in Him, that's when we realize that we're truly centered on that promise that was given to Abraham so long ago that still applies today. Because only in that promise do we see that we were loved by God so much that our salvation was so precious to Him that He gave His Son. Not because we deserved it, because He loved us. Not because we had fixed ourselves and got ourselves ready, but because He knew that there was no other way. That's why, here in a second, the, the, the song that, that we're going to sing is talking about that our response is that we just stand in awe. This is what the gospel does. Is I don't know how anyone could love me so much because it's not possible for people to do that. Only a love of God can truly love people who hurt you, who are against you. And that's the promise that was given that says through this one person you'll find salvation. It's not anything that you do. It's by faith and believing in Him. So do you thirst for Christ? When you live your life and you walk around every day, do you do so knowing that your identity is secure in Christ? Or are you simply just trying to be a better person because you think that's what makes you acceptable to God? Because in Christ alone, are we truly find, found to be pleasing to God and in his righteousness? Let's pray.